Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Sample Hour. This is your host, Drew Sample. Uh, excited to bring you guys this episode today. So some of you may be coming here from uh, Brett Vinat's School Sucks podcast, hear the rest of the conversation. So welcome to the show. I had a great time talking to Brett. Uh, I know many listeners that communicate with me like when I just have conversations with people about different topics. So that's what we did today. We talk a lot about postmodernism. We talk a lot about college education and how it's changed. We talk a lot about a Trump and persuasion, and we, we break down how, um, I mean, really how this kind of like trolling kind of won him the election in this. And it actually is a marketing strategy. So there's a good book in the show notes written by Ryan Halliday, who uh, Scott Hebert and I mentioned a lot. Um, have mentioned a lot in uh, the show we just did about stoicism, like when he was talking about stoicism. So we we break down that. Um, we talk a lot, a lot, a lot of cool stuff. We also talk about Jonathan Haidt. So if you guys don't have an Audible account, I like giving you guys free shit. So um, I have these books in my Audible account, my personal account, so I can actually share them and for free. So if you guys want to listen to either of those books, you can start an Audible account and listen to one of these books for free. So I have uh, The Happiness Something by Jonathan Haidt and then the book by Ryan Halliday we were talking about. Um, but if you guys, if you like Brett and you're a listener of my show, I highly recommend you check out his podcast, School Sucks Podcast. I know I know Brett pretty well. Uh, Brett's going out of his way to help me quite a bit and kind of mentor me in a, in a little bit of way with podcasting, um, either just from listening to his show or just conversations we've had. So I enjoyed having him on and likely going to have him on again in the future. So if you go to schoolsucksproject.com, you can see all of his uh, resources about learn out self-education, unschooling, homeschooling, everything fun like that. Um, you can also follow his podcast. Uh, you can also find his podcast on Stitcher. He has a nice YouTube page, School Sucks Prod. Uh, podcast YouTube page, or if you search for him in iTunes, it's the School Sucks Podcast, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts, you can find it there. Um, but I uh, had a great time talking to Brett, uh, as I've already said. So, But people don't hear what you say, they hear what you keep saying. So with that being said, uh, thanks again, Brett, for coming on the show. Uh, now let's get to the affiliates. If you guys are into nurse, if you were ever looking for some nursery stock, or Bocking 4 and 14 of Comfrey, uh, check out naturesimagefarm.com. Uh, if you use code word sample, you'll save 10% and get free shipping on any purchase. Uh, also, newfarmsupply.com. Grant Schultz still has some stuff there. Uh, so you can get 20% off with code word sample. If you're looking to start your own podcast, I'm a big fan of Podcast Blastoff. I was actually their first customer because I'm good friends with the owners. So if you are interested in getting a podcast, they do do free consulting. So just uh, you can fill out a survey on their site. Um, just click on the link in the show notes. And last but not least, if you are if you want to get into small scale farming, you want to learn how to do it. What's what are the best systems in place and the best ways that you can make money doing it? I highly recommend Curtis Stone's course. Um, if you want to pay for the course up front, I have a coupon so you guys can actually save a hundred dollars off the purchase of the course, which is, it's a, it's a pretty good deal. Or you can just do what I did and sign up for the monthly program. And last but not least, even though I just said that for, for <laughs> profitable urban farming, I just recently also became affiliate for my good friend, Kevin Geary's course, Rebooted Body. 
Uh, personally, I've been getting some pretty good weight loss results from that and just really feeling better, guys. So I, I've kind of partnered uh, that program, which is a pretty loose program. It, it goes over a lot of like strategies and mental things, and it covers a whole in-depth with sl- how to get better sleep and everything like that. So if you're interested in that course, click on the link in the show notes and you guys can learn all about that. So with that being said, guys, enjoy this show. Hi, Brett. I, I like it's weird for me to start these podcasts now, and I've been saying this a hundred times because I just got uh, my buddy wrote me theme music, and then <laughs> I'm like doing an intro before I start talking to somebody. So I'm trying to be more like Brett Finot and be a professional. So it's uh it's hard to do, but for anybody listening, uh, Brett <laughs> is the host of the School Sucks podcast. I've been friends with Brett for a few years. Brett was kind enough to have me on his show last last year at the beginning of last year a little over a year ago so he could teach me how to use Evernote and productivity and finally a year later Brett I finally have productivity down for my journey of self-employment oh uh, terrific it took me a while but yeah I, I I still need to tie in Evernote and I think I'm figuring out finally how to tie Evernote into my system um <laughs> but it's just you know and it's, I think it's good to kind of start with this, man, and tie it together because, you know, a topic we want to talk about today is, is college for self-employment. But as you know, because we're in the same mastermind group, um, like, you know, about me with my struggles in the past with uh, working full-time, trying to do a business part-time, and then thankfully I was forced into becoming full-time uh, self-employed slash entrepreneur. And it was it's just been like a, a journey, man, to where, you know, the past – since November or yeah, since November when I got laid off, it's like every month starting something new. And then when I really, uh, when I started this, the, you know, Kevin's rebooted body and then I was doing whole 30 and doing yoga with it and everything, everything was just coming together, like meditating twice a day, making sure I have stuff done, not drinking alcohol helps out a ton because and eating shitty food because it's like, it's just so much easier to think. And it's like, okay. Yeah. How do I piece everything together? Um, so, I do you do you think we should start out like you know I I should probably plan this stuff but I'm terrible at it and I I just it just never works out for me but like because you know you're sometimes salt, it's salt. fine to just go you know yeah. just shoot and see what happens for sure like yeah. you're you're self employed um yeah. you've been successful for a while you have a very successful podcast uh. And, you know, you do a good job of, of always mixing it up, always reviewing everything that you're doing and, and figuring out things to do. So and, and I think a lot of times as podcasters, what a lot of people don't know is it's really hard to not get bored. It's really hard to and I don't know if you've experienced it, but I experience it and I just take time off. I know it always hurts my subscribing rate and stuff like that. But I mean, you find a way to, to always keep it interesting, to always keep that. And then you, and then you, you can make an income from it too. I mean, but I mean, we talked about the first time I had you on your journey, but how, like, how important do you think it was organization to, to become like successfully self-employed? 
Uh, well, in retrospect, I'd say it's pretty important to become successfully self-employed, successfully being the key word. Uh, when I started doing this, uh, I know I told this story on the show before, but it was a long time ago. It was, uh, you know, a bit of a hobby and I had a career. So I, this wasn't like a completely, you know, risky entrepreneurial venture. I didn't even think there would be a way to monetize it back when I started it. So, um, actually I did. And I thought it would be through merchandise. Boy, was I wrong, yeah. but, um, I was completely disorganized. I didn't have a system and it wasn't until about four years into the show where it seemed like, uh, many aspects of life were just falling apart and things were not going well. And I didn't feel in control of anything that I was doing. And it coincided with me going and spending some time with my friends in Connecticut, and they were adopting the uh, the getting things done system. And I happened to, on my own, discover Evernote. And then, you know, we merged these two worlds, and it was uh, happiness and serenity for all. Um, and, and the difference that it made was absolutely huge. You know, there was, like, so much um, frustration and stress uh, around trying to acclimate to the to the speed of information and the volume of information that's coming at us every day, and th this was not this was like four years ago, so it's not even nearly as bad uh, then as it is now. So if you don't have a system to try and integrate all of that, but also to kind of like discipline yourself, like what can I really go after uh, as a person interested in certain things? but also as a, a media producer, like what are the topics that I should be chasing down and really trying to go vertical into as far as like digging deep and, and getting an understanding or enough of an understanding where you can talk about it intelligently uh, with an audience. It's a real challenge today if you don't have a good system because we you know, are in this social media environment or even this mainstream media environment where they're giving us this horizontal view of the world, right? It's very broad and you can see all of these individual topics that are happening now or that you're supposed to care about now, but you're not really getting any depth from, you know, scrolling through your Facebook news feed or looking at what your uh, suggested videos are through subscriptions on YouTube. You're getting overwhelmed by this amount of information, but there's also this kind of disempowering feeling of not having any depth of understanding of what's happening. So <laughs> if you're a smart and self-aware person, this is really frustrating and it can also be kind of stressful. So having a system also allows you to, you know, set goals, be on a track and discipline yourself to stay on that track, which means not pursuing every shiny thing uh, that pops in front of you because hundreds of shiny things potentially are popping in front of us every single day. So I'm still not perfect at that uh, by any means. I wind up chasing uh, a shiny thing every every now and then, but I can't even imagine uh, what my, uh, my stress level would look like and uh, just the general confusion would look like if I was still using the same habits that I was trying to get by with, you know, four or five years ago. So Yes, the answer your question. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I think this is, yeah, this is like my, this is, I'm going, I'm on my fourth year doing this show. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. I like things have just called, kind of fallen into place because it's like, okay. Uh, and it's interesting because we, you know, uh, 
I listened to your show that you just published about, uh, um, and, and you know, Jordan Peterson's been a, a big topic. And I actually, uh, I found his, he has his book for free on his website. I don't know if you started reading it yet. Um, I started listening to it in a voice dream. And it's just interesting because it's like, I, and I didn't put it together until listening to your show. And then I started listening to um, him on Stefan Molyneux's show just actually just this morning. And I was like, and I was thinking like, because something else just kind of just, everything's been like kind of falling into place. Like the first time I got laid off, it, I wasn't really even laid off. I just, I had my offer rescinded and then I was just kind of in no man's land. And then I just decided to start the podcast because I needed to do something for myself. And then like this time I took this job that I, it was easy money and I was trying to figure out ways to leave it. And then I was, then it was automatically that, that problem was taken care of for me. And I already had like a backup plan for, for business wise. And now it's like, you know, the more that I, I understand what my values are and the more that I know what I actually want, it's so much easier to, it's, it's like everything else is just falling into place for me. It's like, I, I've like removed all these distractions. Like I, I was like five years behind on my taxes and I got all this, all this shit figured out, man. And it's like, it's so much easier to get organized. And I think like, Cause you know, it'd be like every time I'd be in the hot seat for the mastermind group, it'd be like the same damn thing. Like, how do I get organized? Let me do this guys. And it was like, I felt so bad because you like spent so much time trying to help me. And it was like, I could just couldn't fucking grasp it until, until, I don't know, probably two months ago, man. And it's like, it took me so much time, but I kept working and working and working and working on it. And then finally it's like, okay, all these excuses that I've been making are going away. So now I have no choice but to, to but to be successful at this. I think there's a point to what I'm saying here, Brett, but I think it has a lot to do with once you have your values in order, you know, it's it's to me it's it's been easier to stay focused on whether it be the podcast or or entrepreneurial stuff. Um, I think that's what you kind of said before too. Yeah, sure. It's kind of like uh, David Allen's idea. We might have talked about this in that video that I made, and I encourage people to watch it, and I'll make sure you get the link so you can share it with your audience. But uh, Allen, in Getting Things Done, he talks about these horizons of focus. And, you know, without the system, if I go back to describing myself four or five years ago, you have, uh, you're kind of caught on the runway, and there's debris all over the runway. And now <laughs> we live in this world where people are just hurling flaming pieces of debris on your on your runway, right? And yeah, whether yeah. that translates into, you know, the, all of the forces that contribute to distraction or procrastination, uh, it takes a lot of discipline to to get a clear runway so that that plane can actually take off. And you know, being able to see multiple horizons at the same time, this is always something that that I've really really struggled with. Um, I talked before about going vertical into something, like really trying to dig into something and understand it. And sometimes I'll get like nine, 10, 11, 12 hours into something. Uh, maybe it's like a three hour lecture that I'll watch over and over again, trying to understand if it's like some more complex philosophical topic. And then it'll hit me like, oh, wait a minute, what am I trying to do? Talk about this on a show for 30 minutes? Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it's almost like, you know, I feel a, a, a responsibility. It's, it, I think there's an extra a component to presenting ideas publicly where you feel this sense of responsibility. You're taking up other people's time while debris is probably being lit on fire and thrown all over their runways all the time too. So you want to be respectful 
of other people's time. So it is hard to strike this balance of like, you know, I want to keep going up. I want the plane to keep, you know, going up to, uh, you know, that that level of, of life goals, that cruising altitude, uh, if there is such a thing. Uh, you know, but there's so many... Um, uh, there's all these other levels of of focus, and it's hard to find that balance sometimes, you know. I, and I think that's part of that is discipline. Part of that is you know just managing uh, attention. Uh, those are still things that I struggle with. So it's always uh, you know an ongoing process. And you know, I, I you're talking about the mastermind group, and you know maybe feeling bad that you weren't able to capitalize on you know, some learning opportunity, but I, you know, I feel the same way about a lot of other areas. I've had people in that group. I don't know how much a mastermind group is like a fight club and we're not supposed to talk about, is it okay to just say who's in it? Is that fine? Have we announced it before? We'll, we'll keep I don't it on know. the DL. I, let's, let's keep it on the DL. Well, we're okay with saying it. We can say Nathan right. for sure. Okay. So there's another member of that group who really has his act together in all of these respects. And he's volunteered a lot of his time trying to help me get a, a course off the ground. And, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to wrestle with what the obstacles are there for me. Uh, and, you know, it, it, then it gets into all kinds of emotional considerations. So I'm, I think I'm speaking to, like, when you talk about all these things clicking at once, it's a really nice thing to have happen. Um, sometimes, you know, if just one or two things get out of tune a little bit. It seems like my system can can really get cacophonous, yeah. you know, like I, I'm not um, on track anymore. Or I'm not climbing in altitude the way the way I want to be or I'm getting too easily distracted or I'm wasting time or I'm procrast procrastinating. So, yeah, it's just um, I hope people understand that it is a, an ongoing process of making mistakes, learning from mistakes, fine tuning, retuning. Um, and it's it's ever evolving as far as like that foundational system that leads to successfully working without the structure of, you know, a boss or a company or a clearly defined uh, job title or a workstation, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. Now, do you meditate? Because I know when I said I started doing Headspace, um, you helped me kind of structure because I was just doing it any time of the day. And you said, man, you should really try to do that first thing in the day. And then write in your because I was doing the five. I'm still doing the five minute journal. Actually, I mm -hmm. broke down and got the app, and it's actually way better. Like it's weird how much how how more comfortable I am with digital stuff, and how much that helps me discipline myself versus pen and paper. A lot of times, I still like having a pen and paper to write things down, but I, I, it's like an interesting thing. So I think I see the value. But do you do you meditate? And if you do, did you see a lot of value, or did you notice a difference when you started? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, not really like right when I started, but I felt like it was helping me train my focus a little better when I was actually uh, involved in a task. I was able to stay on task longer because for me, uh, you know, when I first got into meditation, it was because I wanted to lower like my stress and anxiety level. And I thought that's what meditation did. I thought that's what meditation was for. And um, I would do it right before I went to bed because I, uh, you know, for a long time I had trouble falling asleep at night. So I'd do these breathing exercises and that became kind of a, a meditation routine. Um, having some conversations with people about it on my show, I realized, oh, this is more about like uh, training focus, like kind of a mind discipline. Um, and also 
a kind of acceptance exercise, like, oh, my mind wanders and says weird things to me and shows me weird images for seemingly no reason. And I don't have to, you know, pay that any more attention than a passing car. I don't have to become consumed by my thoughts. I don't have to unconsciously be, you know, lifted away from an exercise of relaxation or breathing or something productive by a distracting thought or emotion. I can acknowledge that it's there and I can kind of process it quickly and and let it go and go back to what I was doing. And I think the repetition of doing that, I forget who it was. It was somebody on Joe Rogan. They were talking about um, comparing meditation to working out, where um, in working out with weights, you do reps. And there's uh, this this phenomenon where you're you're sitting there quietly, a thought intrudes into your mind and you push it away a kind of like a rep and you return your focus to uh, the breathing or whatever the, the focal point of the meditation is. So doing that over and over again, I think helped me train my attention better. I didn't, I haven't had, you know, really <laughs> positive experiences with attention training through my so-called uh, education, you know, through most of my life. Uh, I, it was it was mostly exercises in in disengagement and distraction, and I think there's still this this uh, system that runs in the background for me and probably for a lot of other people that if I'm doing something that feels like work, uh, there's you know a challenge in staying committed to that attention wise, emotion wise, uh, th those types of investment. I tend to kind of drift away and and go in other directions, um, so. You know whether that's fully the the fault of school or not. I I think there's lots of factors, but meditation helped with all of that. Yeah, I think uh, something you said towards the end there was school, and it and it hopefully it will probably help us tie right into what we want to talk about. I think we're probably both going to advocate not to go to college. Well, not advocate, but talk about why it's maybe not a good idea. At least that's my plan. Uh, sure. But uh, I just finished. Uh, man, I've been just killing audible because i've just been like having time and then i i started like that side hustle just delivering food like just to make some extra money and write off my car and stuff mm -hmm. and uh i just finished anti-fragile by uh nasim i think it's nasim nicholas taleb yeah and he was talking about in that and i really related to it because he like has attention deficit disorder or whatever and i do too or whatever i think it's i think it's just the way your brain works but um i don't really think it's a disorder but he just said naturally when he was growing up, he would always, like he he taught himself to just basically, like he he naturally hated everything that school was trying to teach him, but he loved everything he was trying to, to teach. So like just, I think, and you're a big advocate of, of this on your show, you know, being an, an autodidact, I think naturally when you are, if you just keep yourself interested, you know, it's, it's not going to feel like work because it's going to, it's, you, you know, I think it's kind of, you're kind of playing games with yourself with like that, that dopamine release when you're learning something new. Um, I think that's what happens in your brain. I'm not that smart, Yeah, but, uh, oh, very exciting. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I agree. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's, it's just like anything. I mean, it's even like for, for me, you know, with, with, uh, you know, I got really into, I wanted to grow my own food. And it, it's interesting too, to kind of tie it into what I'm saying is, uh, I heard on your most recent show, you were talking about, um, you and, uh, 
that's a brilliant student at University of Toronto were talking about like there's like a whole generation that hasn't had to they, they just get like instant gratification and it was something that was interesting that like when we when we go back to lo- learn like old timey skills is like when you grow your own food it it naturally teaches you to not want instant gratification because you're going to have to you're going to have to prep your bed you're going to have to plant the seed and that food's going to grow and and that's something like for me that I think it like kind of shifted everything and it's like okay like let's keep exploring this like let's you know I'm gonna you know and it also I I, I hope I'm not you know I hope I'm not losing my train of thought here I'm making this so coherent but they're still coherent but um I think it, it kind of all ties together like you know you you keep yourself when you when you learn to to educate yourself and be an autodidact it's it's easier to not to to stay focused and it's easier to to not let other noise happen because i think it helps you get away from instant gratification what do you think maybe i'm jumping here once you have like a successful pursuit that bears fruit so to speak maybe in cases almost literally and you can see uh, education is further detached from this old idea of school where uh, I think it was Connor Boyack who was on my show recently, and he was talking about you know this frustration that a lot of people have with schooling that it never seems to produce anything, right? It's all just about pleasing other people and basically staying out of trouble, and that you know produces those associations that I spoke to a minute ago, and you know it doesn't. I maybe I could clarify. Because there is this great satisfaction with learning something new, even if it doesn't produce something necessarily tangible right away. But I still get distracted in the sense like I have been digging into the the so-called philosophy of postmodernism lately. And um, I'm reading about this guy, uh, Martin Heidegger is his name. And uh, in the middle of it, I just stand up, and it's so confusing. These people, they don't make it easy for you uh, to, to, to really, like, understand and process what they're saying. Uh, and then, like, all of a sudden, three minutes later, I was in a room on the other side of the house rearranging uh, books. And <laughs> I said, how did, you know, how did this happen? So that, that, that distractibility still uh, exists. And I think it's when, you know, frustration and, and you know, having the right habits in place to deal with that, like knowing when to take breaks, knowing when you've hit a wall, knowing when you've maybe uh, run out of mental energy, uh, that's all important. But those are that, that seems to me like a kind of old habit. Yeah. And I think the the more training or experience, experience is a better word, you get with um, deciding that you want something, recognizing that you have this intrinsic motivation to pursue something, and then pursuing it, and then experiencing uh, success. The, the friction that seems to have once, once been there when it comes to any kind of educational or intellectual pursuit because of those associations for so many of us that were made in school, the acquisition of so-called knowledge is boring and painful and you know very extrinsically motivated and there's lots of pressure and there's lots of stress and there's lots of compulsion uh, attached to that whole process in our memories but once we become the, the authors of our own educational experience and we experience success doing that 
I think that a lot of that friction dissipates. A lot of those old associations start to weaken. I mean, they maybe they never go away. But uh, yeah, I can I can definitely agree with what you're saying. And I know that you know just from the conversations I've had with you, these successes that you've had, learning these things, teaching yourself these things, and seeing the success, seeing that they can bring income, seeing that there's a real opportunity to get away from like a you know a nine to six type lifestyle. Um, that's been your experience, right? Absolutely, man. And I think, uh, something else that you, you were talking about when you said going away, I immediately thought of the, uh, Pomodoro, what is it? Pomodoro method where you like 20 minutes on and 20 minutes off or 10 minutes off or something. Pomodoro. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you're not taught that in school either. And I just remember, uh, I was just, I was thinking that there's like all these learning skills that you're just not taught in school. And I think it's, uh. And that's what's, and it, I was just, I just totally thinking about that when you were saying, go away. I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about what I just learned and I'm rearranging books. And it's like, you know, it's, there's like a, I think about like homeschooling. I think about, uh, you know, my, so, some of my closest friends, man, in, in like this always, you know, Ohio GSD community that we kind of started where we're just kind of helping each other learn the old timey ways. Mm-hmm. Um, like two families I'm really close with the Burnses and the Fogels, they both homeschool their kids. I think like there's seven kids in the Burnses, four kids in the Fogels. And it's like, you know, I can only imagine on a homestead what type of homeschooling you have. Cause let's say, uh, cause I'm sure there, all right. So you have animals already. So there's already chores to be in place that you're going to have to do not just at the beginning of the day, but also towards the end of the day, you know, just to check on pigs or to check on birds or collect eggs or something like that. Right. So (laughs) if you're a kid and you can be homeschooled and you can learn a little bit of stuff at a time, and then it's like, okay, go outside and do these chores. You have this whole world that I didn't, I didn't necessarily grow up, but I watched these kids have it where there's just land that they can go walk on. There's trees that they can go kind of be around and they can probably think and process what they just learned. Even if they're struggling with it, they get a little bit of a release when they get to go outside and, and spend time with these animals. And it's, and to me, um, cause I was messaging you like homeschooling and home homeschool homesteaders. And you're like, well, what, what exactly are you thinking about? And I was like, man, I, I can't really put this into words, but that's what, that's what I think about. Like, I think about like, um, you know, being able to, to teach your kids and raise your kids to think, you know, to, to, to learn math or something to go out and, and actually kind of try to apply it with 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 the homestead or something like that. Mm. Uh, I don't know if any of that made sense, but even if like you're making beer or something like that and then you're teaching your kid math. Like I know when when I learned arithmetic, my grandpa who was barely educated taught me when I would when I'd help him work. And he'd be like, "All right, buddy, how many boards are there?" when I was like helping him move stuff or something and then like I'd be counting and he was like teaching me through activity. And I didn't even realize it. And I was always good at math. And I never put the two and two together until I became an adult because I learned um, I learned in my environment. And it's the same with, like, when Gino Denning talks about how he learned grammar with his mom. And mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of the same thing. And I think that's, like, the, you know, when you're in a school, like, I just went to B school. And it was uh, me, Greg, and his two boys. And they're all homeschooled. And they're, like, <laughs> they never sat in a classroom setting like that before because they've been homeschooled their whole lives. And they're like, God, that was long. And we, and it was literally not that bad. It was like 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. And 
It, it was actually pretty interactive. There was lots of breaks to stand up. It was nothing like school. And, but it was still like sitting down naturally. I think when, when, I think something that you were talking about when you associate what is actually associating like the old school knowledge process with like uh, not enjoying learning is, I mean, you're not supposed to sit down that long. Like, as we know, like we both studied like how to make our bodies better and everything. Like, we naturally want to be upright and walk around. Like, I'm, uh, I'm going to, when I get at my next desk, it's going to be one that I can elevate and stand and work at and one that I can lower. And, you know, so I think, I think just like the physical, if you're in a physical setting where you're, where you're learning, um, where, where you're in a learning environment and you're physically uncomfortable, it's going to make you uncomfortable with learning. I, I, I would, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's really strong, like mind body associations, even like, um, th th that how, um, certain memories stick because there's some, uh, emotional or physical trauma attached to them all the, all the way to the point where people suggest, if you really need to remember something, you know, repeat it to yourself and then pinch yourself forcefully yeah. while you're doing it. And it might actually produce like a, a micro trauma that helps you remember it. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's the association that I'm speaking about, right? When you're especially a young boy, I think school is really, really, um, you know, difficult for young boys who they are very much uh, about making meaning for themselves by the things they can do and the things they can touch and the things they can manipulate. And they want to move and they want to roughhouse and they want to assert themselves. And, and, you know, I mean, school hurts gr girls in this way too, because it's not like they want to sit perfectly still and be well-behaved and be quiet. And nobody at that age wants to do that. But, you know, from the research that I've done really in the last year, I, I'm realizing this has a much more negative effect on boys, almost to the point where the largely female staff in schools starts to pathologize the behavior of young boys. So we see much higher occurrences of things like ADHD or oppositional defiant disorder. Um, those uh, are diagnosed with boys. I think ADHD was like three to one or four to one boys to girls. And uh, yeah, it's, just, it's, it's not healthy for the body, it's not healthy for the mind, and it's not healthy for uh, the pursuit of knowledge if people want to pretend that's what's really happening in school. Uh, just back to something you said a few minutes ago, and it kind of relates to this, you're talking about the, the Pomodoro method. For people who are unfamiliar, usually the way it works is like it's a tomato timer that you can buy. There's a book that goes with it too. You wind it up, you work for 25 minutes, it goes off, you take a five-minute break, and, and you work in cycles like that. Depending on the kind of work you do, you can set it for longer, you can, you know, intermittent, uh, intersperse longer breaks after you do three or four, you know, Pomodoro sessions. And school does offer a kind of unconditional Pomodoro method, right? Like a bell rings every 45 minutes, and then it rings uh, five minutes later. But you don't have any say in that, right? No. So like the Pomodoro method, sometimes I use it, sometimes I don't. It depends on what I'm doing. If I'm doing a task that is more like one of the the, the mundane operations, um, I, I hate to say this, but I really don't like writing emails um, or responding to emails. I'd rather talk to people uh, you know, voice to voice. Well, you are a podcaster, Brett, so that makes sense. So we do like to talk and Absolutely. share opinions. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, I, I look at my email and I'm like, where are all you people when I was doing a call-in show? 
So I, I try to, to uh, like block uh, sessions to, to write emails to people or just process emails that I don't have to respond to, do the basic accounting of the show, solve problems that people have with their PayPal accounts or their uh, website accounts, uh, or you know updating code on the website or changing things around or doing, doing graphics. Um, there are times where I am you know, setting myself up for success to work in a way where I'm getting up and moving around every uh, 25 minutes or every 30 minutes for at least a few minutes. I'm getting in, you know, steps, part of that lifestyle balance thing too. Like I'm just sitting at a desk all day and uh, basically motionless because uh, I do have to work sitting still most of the time. I also, for um, like some additional income, do audiobook editing. So I would work that way on the Pomodoro method. It's it's the task where I feel like the uh, the kind of burnout is higher. Uh, but there's times where I get really invested and really excited about something that I'm doing, and I can get kind of um, I think the juiced not juiced in wired in. There's that movie, The Social Network. They have a, the, this expression for the coders, uh, the Facebook coders, when they basically go into a trance and they do like 18-hour coding sessions. I think it might be like wired in or something like that yeah. where, you know, where I'm, where I'm really trying to figure out some kind of a project. And I, and I, and I don't mind if I wind up sitting still for three hours, it's rare, but I like to have the option to do that. And, you know, I mean, John Taylor Gatto talked about this with school all the time. It's like, nothing is, nothing is so interesting that, um, you know, a bell can't disrupt it and immediately bring it to an end, you know? Nothing, you should not be so invested in anything that you're not willing to close the book or move to a new station when the, the, there's no arguing with the bells of school, right? So the Pomodoro method is a kind of way of, you know, it's not the school bell. It's something that's much more customizable and it's also very optional. So I think that especially, and just like back to the whole balance thing, which is, you know, broader than the Pomodoro method. Yeah. Seeing young people, especially, you know, young boys between the ages of like, you know, five and 12, being able to out, be outside and do things with their hands. Um, you know, it breaks my heart to think about that. There's other people who are in that age group who have the exact same needs who are stuck, you know, 40 hours a week, almost aside from maybe recess and, and changing classes, uh, they're stuck sitting in a desk listening to somebody drone on about something they don't care about. Yeah, I was diagnosed with both ADD and oppositional defiance disorder. Um, I think the oppositional defiance disorder, I think it just makes sense because I've always been a, a contrarian. And I think uh, I prefer, man, it's weird, like the whole, uh, because it's like the, the split amongst the liberty movement that's going on. I'm just like, man, I'm just going to embrace the term contrarian. And, mm -hmm. and start my own thing with that and that's what we've been kind of doing but i think that's just natural i think most i think a lot of people that f that fall and are under that uh, come underneath the liber the uh philosophy of liberty i think that's that's something that's natural because you don't like putting somebody in a box like putting any but you or i putting our like if we're not even when we put ourselves in a box it's so hard for us to to function like it's i think that's one of the reasons why it took me so long to get organized because i felt like if i'm if i have to do this it's not as it's it's not as free or it's not fun so i had to figure out a way to make it fun and it's like oh you know i just think about 
and then it was like, you know, how good do I feel when I actually do get this stuff done? Um, and that's, that's what I just started focusing on. And then that's what, that's what solved it for me personally. But I think, you know, just what I remember from school, I mean, and just like what you're talking about, little boys, I remember I, every day I was with my grandfather and we were just, I was just, I mean, like we were just doing something. He was always, he was retired. So we'd always be working outside or I'd be playing outside or I had all these options. And then I, in kindergarten, I had to go three days a week. I didn't go half. I do like every other day because I was in a Catholic school. And it was just miserable for me. I hated it. Like, I hated every second. I had to take naps at certain times. And before, if I just wanted to take a nap, I would. And it was, uh, it, it's weird to think about. And then I, I think when I was in, I, I did well in school. And then I moved away. And when my parents split up, and then I was put on ADD medicine. And then it just kind of made me, kind of made me a zombie, man, when I think yeah. about it. Like, yeah. it, it didn't, like, I, I could sit there and stay focused. But, like, I remember I was taught that when you have ADD, it's because you don't you don't have an ability to focus. It's like, no, you don't have an ability to control your focus. When you do focus on something, you're way better at it than normal people, it seems like. Like I can but it's just like when you have so many inputs, it's like training your mind to handle all those inputs. Um right. which goes back to meditation. Um but yeah, man, we gotta I want to I want to segue this into into university. Should we talk about what's going on in universities now? I I, I was like hesitant to bring it up with you because it's like I know you're getting burned out with the uh, speed in politics, but then you just did another episode and you've been thinking about it and uh, yeah, I'm pretty immersed in that. I don't I don't mind talking about it at all. I think actually it, just having all that crap rattle around in my own head is probably not so good. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. All right, so. Interesting times right now. So I, so personally, it's weird because I, you and I both came from the left and it's like, I remember like my mom, like it was interesting. I just, I just watched Dave Rubin on uh what is that university? They had micro on it. It's like a, they have a YouTube channel. I don't think it's a real university. It's something with a P I think, but Anyways, it's not important, but he talks, he talks about in this little, it's like, they do like short video clips of people. He was talking about like why he went from working with the young Turks and why he found himself leaving, like why he found himself considered being classified on the right. And it's like this weird thing that happens. And a lot of it is, and like, I don't really classify myself on either, but it's, it's weird. It, It was weird where it's like, I don't feel like I've been saying anything different. And I used to have both liberals and conservatives like against me, but now it's like conservatives agree with me more than liberals. And now I have liberals calling me a fascist or anything. So then it was, I started reading Scott Adams's blog about persuasion. And then I started reading all the books he recommended and then just like kind of studying Trump from that, that uh, lens. And have you, have you read any of Scott Adams's stuff? Like through the whole election? Blogs. Yeah, I, I've read some of his stuff on on Trump, and I kind of watched his uh, path to becoming more supportive of Trump than he initially was. Well, it's it's like he was – it's weird because I feel like and – and I saw uh, Kevin Geary do it too on Facebook, and him and I are both doing it. It's like, it's like I, I felt the need, the, the contrarian in me, just to troll like on Facebook <laughs> because it's like – Nobody wants to have a, a, a civil discussion. It's like we're, it's such a, and we alluded, you, you were talking about it earlier and it's, 
it's like Facebook's whole revenue is based on people having reactions. It's not based on people having conversations. They want you to have quick reactions. And there's like a whole, it's like a whole revenue thing to it. And like, from what I've, like what I've seen, I mean, you can get in groups. I've noticed, man, you get in groups, like you, you can have really productive things. I mean, we're, you know, it, like anything, it's not good or bad. It's just the way you use it. And, um, it's been interesting, man. Like I don't, I didn't vote, man. I mean, I, I didn't vote for Trump, but it is, there is this, this, uh, sick part of me that thinks it's hilarious to watch people lose their minds about it and to really push their buttons about it. But I was listening to uh, your last podcast and the guy said, you know, this, you know, he was talking about the, at the, you know, the protesters, one guy was trying to egg the protester on. And then they said something about his father and then he lost his mind. Mm -hmm. And it's like, uh, it's just such a weird thing, man. It's like people look at these politicians or they look at these issues and it's like they're talking about it's like it's like I, I just called your grandma a whore. But all mm -hmm. I really did was was say something, my opinion about somebody that I will never meet, you will never meet. But it's like people look at him like it's their own damn family. It's such a weird fucking thing, man. Well, I think it's about a heightened state of emotion, right? And it goes back to we we mentioned this already in this conversation, the lack of patience. Right. Because I don't see it, it. I have noticed like a lot of older leftists behave in similar ways when it comes to argumentation or debating or more appropriately and more often uh, anti-debating or avoiding debating um, on on the issues that they claim to care about. Right. That they're happy to post about and pat each other on the back about inside their own circles. But when an outsider comes in and starts asking questions or starts presenting a different point of view, it doesn't go well. And they can get very triggered themselves. Um, but a lot of what we're seeing in college, you know, Jonathan Haidt, the moral psychologist, who's done a, a lot of great work on this over the last year, has talked about, well, you know, first of all, this is the, the helicopter parenting generation grown up. You know, uh, if you're uh, our age or older, uh, and you already spoke to this in this conversation, that you had time by yourself as a youth, right? Yeah, you could yeah. explore. I could ride my bike in a sand pit and, you know, find Playboy magazines uh, that people <laughs> had left out there when I was like seven. And uh, I, I lived uh, a very exploratory youth a lot of it unsupervised. Now, I was fortunate to live in, you know, a fairly safe area, and there's plenty of trouble to get into, but, you know, I mean, I was contained within, you know, a town uh, that was very rural and low crime and very homogeneous in belief. So it was a safe place to explore within. And then yeah, you know, I remember being in elementary school and starting to hear these stories about kidnappings. And I remember every day there, this girl in the in the next town got kidnapped and they Strange never found danger. her. Yeah, yeah. So they never found this girl. And every day on the bus on the way home, somebody would say, the girl, I heard a rumor that the girl's body is in that pond right there. You know, like scary stuff like that. And we all thought we were going to, so it's like, I grew up in elementary school. By the time elementary school wound to a close, it's like, oh God, I'm going to get kidnapped. 
And then, you know, high school came to a close and it was like, oh, God, I'm going to get AIDS. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was just <laughs> those were the fears uh, that that informed my youth and, and my teen years. But I had formative years where I was, you know, just kind of a rogue explorer. And that was a that was a cool thing. That was a cool opportunity. Well, the next generation didn't have that opportunity. And, and today's youth, the kids who are you know, the seven-year-old me's riding my bike in, in the sand pit in, in the 1980s, if their parents allow that today, they could wind up in jail, you know, or they could wind up getting CPS called on them, basically, for, for like negligence. So as the, the generation after mine grew up to college age, they didn't have any experience kind of mediating conflicts by themselves or with groups of friends. So it, it always became about, you know, deferring to authority. Because, you know, mom or dad or authority figure in stranger danger generation was always hovering over them. So now when there are social conflicts, especially around, you know, political or cultural issues in higher education, it's like authority help me is, is the cry. And that's kind of coupled in, in this generation with this lack of an ability to delay gratification. There is no patience now. So it's like, I have a problem, I need it solved immediately. I have a question, I need to find knowledge or, you know, an adequate substitute, a knowledgey feeling thing will do in its place. So people settle for the, for the wrong answers and they want, you know, decisive authoritative solutions to their problems. People are impatient and lazy and a lot of those are generational and environmental factors. But when it comes to higher education, there's also this, like this postmodern philosophical container that all of the, all of this stuff exists in, and it makes for very cloudy debates. Once you start introducing ideas like everything is subjective, that you know reason and evidence are um, not as important as things like feelings. Uh, and that's a it's a complicated uh, structure or lack of structure uh, of ideas that postmodernism is. But postmodernism is the prevailing philosophy in higher education in many forms, especially across the social sciences. Postmodernism, to some extent, and the like the unknowability of reality has even polluted to some extent the, some of the hard sciences. But it really is. Uh, at this point, a creature of the social sciences and, you know, literature programs or arts programs or, you know, all of the the group studies like, uh, you know, African-American studies, transgender studies, women's studies, those kinds of identity um, academic pursuits, if you want to call them that. They're all really, really inside this this container of postmodernism. And it's very hard to to pin people down and actually have meaningful discussions with them because they are elevating your group identity above your individual ability, whether you're able to prove it or not, um, to make meaning out of the world and to form an argument and to defend an argument. Well, that's because you're white. You're a white male uh, or you're part of this group. And I have these preconceived um, you know, understandings of that group. And I organize things into an, an oppression hierarchy. So let's not really like think we're actually having a discussion or an exchange of ideas here. You are a, a tool or a pawn of the oppressor class. 
you know, so, so I'm, I'm kind of getting this, <laughs> these things get very, very muddy very quickly and I'm not maybe helping in my explanation here, but it is very, very hard to have a, a common rational back and forth. And you know, that I think that confluence of factors, whether it's philosophical or anti-philosophical, um, you know, in, in the case of postmodernism, and it, and it isn't like there, there weren't competent thinkers who were trying to do important things in the world of ideas, um, but it's kind of like, you ever see that movie Multiplicity with Michael Keaton and he keeps copying himself and then you get to like version four and is, you know, like the fourth clone of a clone of a clone. <laughs> yeah. It's basically retarded. Right. Yeah. I love so, it. That's so postmodernism, what, like the, if you, if you follow the, 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 the legacy of ideas, you go back to some, some really competent thinkers and important philosophers like Immanuel Kant, but as they steer further and further uh, you know, away from enlightenment thinking, uh, it gets like really anti-realism and anti-truth and anti-objectivity. And it just, uh, it opens the door for a lot of ideological and, uh, you know, even uh, just ideological messes, basically. And, and that's, the, that's the environment of higher education today. So that explains, I think, to some extent, why we're seeing a lot of these things. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense, man. Um, yeah, that was covered. Man, a couple thoughts hit my brain when you were when you were saying all that stuff, but then I kept listening, and I think I lost it. Uh, oh, it's it's kind of counterintuitive to like because I heard uh, I forget what somebody said, but like America's religion, national religion, is really individualism. And it's, it's, and I, maybe it's, it's pretty popular amongst the West, but especially here in the United States, it seems like postmodernism is just kind of a, it's kind of counterintuitive to individualism. It's like they want individualism, but they don't want to be responsible for themselves. It's the, it's a, it's such a, it's such a weird thing, man. It's, it doesn't make any sense. Just like you were saying, like it, it doesn't, um, People don't want to take responsibility. And at the same time, people need to have, it's just so weird. Like they just want to have victims that they can, that they can say, oh, what about these people? They don't get it. And it's, and at the same time, man, whenever I hear these people talking about it, like I don't, I don't see these people living in, like I see them, the people, it's like the white people that I noticed that, and this is clear, this is strictly anecdotal. And I, I try to feel like I'm, I'm pretty good at reading people just because I've been in sales for so long. But it seems like most people, and this, again, this is, there's no studies to back this up, that have that opinion that, you know, that, you know, oh, you, you, that's, you know, that's, that's, uh, whatever that goofy shit is, cultural appropriation. They don't, they've never lived in a black neighborhood. They've never been outside a, a, a large white, you know, white area and it, and i'm always wonder like okay well what's your zip code and then i look it up and i'm like yeah that's not very diverse i mean that's that's pretty white or even um even celebrities they're talking about you know we need to let these refugees in it's like well okay well you got all these mansions so you're gonna let these people live with you like what what's this, what's your solution are you gonna be you just want to to it's it's kind of like a weird thing that they i don't know i feel like a lot of it's driven by white guilt honestly and, it, and like, that's what I see. And, and, and I could be wrong, but I know in my generation, man, I mean, it was, it was a weird thing, man. I remember growing up in a liberal family and I had some white guilt, but at the same time, it wasn't, 
my mo- I mean, my mom was super liberal, but she's also a social worker, and she always is like, I mean, she she was somebody that would like actually do like she was like an AIDS and HIV social worker. So, and she predominantly worked in black neighborhoods, and she would predominantly go to 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 help them with with education. And she'd felt being shunned out, like, oh, you're not a part of this community. You're not allowed to help us because you're white. And she's she's felt that, but she kept doing it anyways. And so like. It's 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 totally different than now where it's just people want I feel like people just want to complain. Well, we see a lot of very we see a lot of behavior that's more driven by irrational emotion than actually making arguments, right? So you talk about uh the migrant crisis and people saying you know, no going to the airport and chanting no hate, no fear. Uh Muslims are welcome here. And as if that's the only discussion that that needs to be had uh, about this this vastly complex situation, yeah. where you know you have you know mixed into these groups of people fleeing these countries that you know the U.S. has been bombing for at least the last eight years, if not longer, in some cases. And you know some of them are Christian and they've been persecuted in those countries, and some of them are are Muslim. And if they if they get here and they're just sort of put on some kind of government assimilation into society program how is that going to go for them like do these people who are saying you know open our borders and let these people in are they even like thinking it through and i'm talking about mostly people on the left like i mean i understand the libertarian open borders argument but these people who who are have this dream of a multicultural utopia do they think it through to the point where it's like okay now you're here and you know, whether you're a, 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 depending on the country and depending on the group, you know, are you a Sunni or a Shia and what kind of neighborhood are you in and how do you, what, how do you navigate this culture with, you know, your children that you want to raise a certain way and would you have been better, you know, fitting into a, a, a safe zone that was established in an already predominantly Muslim country somewhere in the Middle East where there was a more homogeneous population where you would have felt more comfortable with your family. Like, oh, they, these people don't give a shit about any of that. They just want to do a chant that makes them feel good. And this this speaks to the to the exact problem. It's it's this container that seems to have overtaken thought that, that is the entire left, that is all of higher education, um, you know, that, that undermines enlightenment thought. Ayn Rand would roll in her grave uh, as would most de- dead objectivists if they saw what was going on. You know, it's all subjectivity. It's it's anti-realism. It's it's uh, the ethics of emotion and feelings and relativism. And, you know, it's it's the, the political state of collectivism and egalitarianism. So, you know, we, in our own lives, as we try to make meaning and we try to accomplish things, we have at least like a strong desire to adhere to reality and reason and cause and effect. But if we, you know, in our in our political thinking and our philosophical thinking, like this is the case with the modern left, if we let those things go, what governs us? It's our it's our feelings, you know, it's our emotions. They take center stage. And I'm not saying we've wrestled with this on the show for a long time. You know, like emotions are inextricable from our thinking patterns. We have to take emotional inventories. We have to understand the emotional landscape, uh, you know, that we that we live in personally. And we have to defend our emotions from outside attacks because we know they can be deceptive and, and they're often reckless. 
But basically, you know, what what seems to be emerging in a lot of political and philosophical thought, and this is over the course of the last half century, is you know, not anymore. You know, just your emotions supersede. Uh, you know, all of these these uh, constrictive uh, patriarchal structures of debate, <laughs> log <laughs> logic and definitions of words like that's all part of an oppressive system. Like there are postmodern and postmodernness again is very postmodernism is very vast. So there's people who would not agree with this, but there are also postmodernists who have forwarded those ideas that science itself is in some cases is oppressive, that language itself is is oppressive and exclusionary in ways that it shouldn't be. So, you know, we are left with just feelings and and the contents of of a lot of the beliefs being taught in college, whether it's like um, you know German idealism or romanticism, which has all of these um, you know the the dark feelings or suspicion and and hyper skepticism about the world or Marx and victimization. Or even like uh, just this other things like you know throwing out logic and reasoning, it produces a real mess uh, emotionally, and I think that's that's a contributing factor to to a lot of the things that we're seeing is that emotion has been elevated above reason and identity has been elevated above uh, individuality and individual merit to make arguments and make meaning in the world. No, I hundred percent agree, man. That, that was good stuff. Um, yeah, I don't, uh, it, it's, it's, it's really weird, man. I, th I think a lot of it is, I mean, do you think a lot of this stems from like stranger danger? I mean, do you think that like that's that whole stranger danger thing is what kind of got us started on this path of, of or do you think it was this stranger danger danger came from postmodernism? I mean, I, I feel like that's what started everything. I feel like stranger danger is what started hover parenting, and I I saw it and even experienced it. And actually, I mean, I'm kind of glad my mom my mom didn't hover me over too much, but I, she never liked me playing football. And mm -hmm. I remember uh, I got a concussion, and my coaches were still trying to make me practice and stuff. And my mom like went out there and yelled at all my coaches and obviously I never played football really again like I was never seriously taken considered as like starting but thank god man like in reality like football so bad for you but that, I mean that was the extent I mean my mom would intervene I had just being who I was I did get a lot of teachers fired and I did get some people fired because like I just would dig my heels in if I knew I was right and then my mom would back me up which was actually incredibly supportive like I would fight my own battles and then if the school brought her in, they would lose. And that was that was rewarding. But now it's just, even when I was an RA, man, I remember being in college. And this girl was, like, there was just different things. Like, this girl was crying because she walked in on her roommate banging some guy. Mm -hmm. And she wanted me to talk to her mom on the phone. And it was, like, first thing in the fucking morning. And I was, like, and I, like, woke up. And I was, like, she's, like, this is not what I grew up with, blah, blah, blah. And her mom was trying to talk to me, and I just handed the phone back to her. I'm like, look, you're an adult. This is your problem. you got to deal with it. Like, yeah. I, I said, let's do roommate contracts. You didn't want to believe me. And then she actually, like, I was actually really fair. Then she tried to call me a racist, and then she realized my roommate was black, so that argument didn't work for her. And then it was just, uh, you know, and then it, it kind of worked itself out. And I wasn't, I was never, like, a dick to her. Like, I, I could have been, but I was, like, always calm, and I'd always try to, like, 
mediate. Like, if somebody really doesn't like me, I go out of my way to be nice to them. Like, even um, and usually they become my friend. Like, I, I you know, I don't. It's I, I don't ever like I've been in street fights when I was a kid, and I had a fight for principal, or it was just silly. You know what I mean? Like, I was in a poor area, and and I think when you actually get when you actually experience violence towards you, or you actually see violence towards somebody else over over views or an ideologue or something like that like you do realize right. that that is not the answer and i i and that's i mean that's the last thing I mean, if i had to to if 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 it was actually like something that was life-threatening and i had to fight somebody or it, i actually the only time i go fucking crazy if somebody's threatening somebody that's my family or something but if somebody threatened me the same way they threatened them i wouldn't freak out i would actually like try to embrace them or try to talk to them and see you know how did this conflict happen I don't know. It's right. a, it's a weird thing that clicks in me. Like I get really protective, but you know, it's it's like you know this this whole emotional thing of being protective of people you don't even know and going to violence. Like it's it's just unreal. And I, and I know maybe we're beating a dead horse here, but I think it's just so fucking interesting, man. Like, it's I, very interesting. And you know, when you asked if like the 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 stranger danger thing is what set it off, I was trying to like formulate. A, a metaphor to to offer my theory and i was trying to decide whether it was like a confluence of streams that run into a big river right so there's all these different factors right and and you said you felt like stranger danger is where this all began i think that might be for for people our age like we're pretty close in age that was kind of where we ran into the big river right that was yeah. like our first exposure but behind us where we entered that river that that tributary into that river that we came in on there was already a huge river flowing behind us and then i wondered too if like in this river one of the things I learned uh, when I was teaching kids kayaking is that a river flows because it's just kind of like sheets of water on top of each other. This is how it was explained to me. And at the bottom, you have the what's harder to see, what's colder and deeper and darker is a stronger current, a more powerful current. And as you get close to the top, you know, the water moves faster and it gets very choppy. And it, And you can think about you know, I think about my own life this way sometimes. Like I have maybe these, you know, things that would probably be best addressed in therapy that are deep and dark and 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 very strong in how they affect my life. And then you go up to like a a middle current that's easier to see, but also fairly strong. That's like the stresses about health and finances and and these kinds of things. But then at the top where the water is choppy and most visible, it's all like some asshole cut me off in traffic, or I had this fight on Facebook, or I saw this thing that pissed me off, or I, you know, I stubbed my toe on a chair in the dark. You know, so, so all of these things together make up this, this sort of stressful river of life. But I think that also works for this for this larger phenomenon to an extent. It's not perfect, but um, years ago, like maybe five or six years ago, I made this YouTube video called The American Way, which was kind of like, how did this happen in Nazi Germany? Oh my God, look, it, is America like this? I think it's kind of a, I, I don't think the video holds up today. I think it's still interesting. But I said, well, you know, we got their school system. So we got their system of authority uh, and, and collectivism imposed on us, imposed on what was post-Enlightenment and post founding fathers and bill of rights a fairly like freedom oriented and individualistic culture yeah, and then yeah. this this kind of system of authority in training the youth was imposed on it but then so the, so that's one part of that river right and then 
There's also deep and dark and, and a strong current of the philosophical ideas that came from America's relationship with Central Europe and a lot of these German thinkers, you know, the Immanuel Kants, the, the, and, and Baer uh, and Hegel and the idea of the state and, and collectivism. And then, you know, all these other, other currents about, um, you know, the, the postmodernists. It's, it's all moving in the same river. And then we see whether, whether that, that river is causal of these other things, like, like stranger danger or, or the social justice. It's all kind of like running together now in, into this very, very, very strong current. So we picked it up in one place, but it, it ran behind us. Uh, for a long time, quite powerfully, I think that, and it's and and now there is this this confluence of all these different factors: the the impatience of the online world, the the helicopter parents' uh, kids grown up, uh, th these long, deep philosophical currents that have affected Western thought for almost two centuries at this point. The the relationship of people to authority. The, the minimization of the individual in favor of the collective, like all of these things come together in, in 2017 in some ways that are, are really you know, quite ugly and not so promising for the future. How do you think when the inevitable education bubble bursts, that's going to affect colleges and, and all this nonsense that's going on in colleges? Like, do you think there's still going to be people? I mean, that's the weird thing too that I think about. It's like, not only are you getting yourself in so much debt that you have a mortgage payment, you're not going to get a job, like most likely you're not going to, uh, in your line of study, uh, you might work at Starbucks or something like that and get all upset because they have expectations of you and, and you know, whatever, I am making some generalizations about, you know, this, you know, helicopter parenting and everything, uh, culture or kids that have grown up or this instant gratification children like you know like my, my buddy used to teach and and i and i went through this in college like oh i'm here i i you know there's there's definitely people that go to college because they want to get a job not to get an education and it's it's interesting because you used to go to college and get an education you used to be able to pay your own way through school and you would work for it but now you know now that the government took over student loans we have all we have this huge bubble. The, the colleges are raising costs because students have unlimited sources of free money that never existed before, and so they are they're raising their tuition. And so these kids are going in, in all this debt, and then they're going to school, and all they're doing is complaining, bitching, chanting, and shouting. I feel like sometimes I'm like, I wonder what would happen if we did just get fire hoses and start spraying these kids. Would they still want to protest? Would they still? Would this vindicate them in their in their in their uh, shouting and their beliefs? Like, what do we do about these kids? And it's like, you know, it, does when this education bubble bursts and there's not all this free money, if if it does go away, I mean, you know, this indentured servitude that you sign up for since you can't, uh, you know, since you you can't file bankruptcy and get rid of the student debt, like, right? I, I I'm just like, there's all these factors, man that I see economically that are connected. I mean, like I just saw like the auto bubble is going to burst here soon. And maybe, I don't know. I always think that and then it doesn't, but it's, it's just so weird. Like, you know, what, it, what are they going to do? I mean, what are they going to do when they don't have a place to live? Cause let's say their parents lose their house in this next real estate bubble. Like what? I don't know, man. Like I just, I just, I'm like, these people are bitching about 
things that aren't real and maybe in some circumstances, but a lot of times they're blown out of proportion. But then there's real things to worry about. There's real things that I see like economically and financially that you don't know skills to survive. You don't know skills. And I'm not saying this from a survivalist perspective, but I'm just saying like learning skills is where it's at. And that's something I've learned. And I'm, and I'm sure you would say too. And they're not, they don't have any real skill. They don't have any, anything real to bring to, to the table, except for how to be, uh, not necessarily good at being disruptive. Like, I think there's like a, a positive disruption, but then there's also like a negative disruption too. I don't know. Yeah. The higher education, first of all, is a huge mess. And because of the availability of what is now federal money to get people into college and this egalitarian vision, which is part of that same river that I was just speaking about. Yeah. Everybody should go to college. Well, a lot of kind of shiftless nitwits wind up there. And a lot of people who would be, and it's not like they're destined to be nitwits. It's just like they spend 15,000 hours in, um, you know, uh, another form of school that didn't prepare them to be independent thinkers working towards uh, self-actualization or directing themselves towards a career, right? Because yeah. it was entirely about uh, dependence and uh, uh, extrinsic motivation. So, like, college is very much uh, the 13th grade. It is the continuation of school. It is the continuation of dependency. This is one of the things Jonathan Haidt spoke about is that, you know, there's this, this deference to authority to, to solve these social problems in, in higher education. So you have uh, a college population, a growing college population that is not being prepared to do anything while incurring enormous debts. And when people go to college without, you know, clear, uh, you know, a clearly defined path to some extent, they wind up in these stupid social sciences programs that there's no, there's no jobs on the other side of uh, other sides of those things, right? So they're yeah. just wasting time and wasting money. Now, those people who who take those lessons that they learn in those places and they go out and they do all this silly. Uh, you know, screaming and shouting, or they call it activism, and they put on these, you know, theatrical performances. That's still a, a minority of of college students. And I think most people in college, I think if you went to, uh, I, I live near Dartmouth, which is, an, which is an Ivy League school, and there's a lot of people there, and they've had a few of these incidents, uh, incidents there. So I bet if you went there and you saw a group of students putting on some kind of, you know, demonstration or outrage performance, most other Dartmouth students would look at them and be like, oh, my God, these people are so annoying. I, I would I would still think that that would even be a majority of people there. But that minority is very vocal. And, and because of this habit of deferring to authority and because of their impatience, pressures are going to be applied. Right. We've seen in the last couple of years at schools like Mizzou and Claremont McKenna, people have resigned <laughs> in response to to these dust ups and these protests and this outrage. So they and, and Jonathan Haidt has even talked about one of his classes being shut down because a social justice warring student was offended by something that he presented in a video because it mentioned homosexuality. So people who do go to college to learn, you know, I mean, Hyde teaches psychology, so that's, you know, a valid study, um, are having, uh, you know, the they're having their learning opportunities uh, infringed upon. 
right? By by all of this noise and drama and performance that people are putting on in college. The institutions are becoming less stable, uh, number one, because of how they get their funding and because of the, the you know the bureaucratic nature that that funding contributes to. So there are still valuable things to do in college. You know, that you can go to a research university, you can go to an engineering school. Um, you might really be uh, excited about a career that can only be attained through a college track. Um, but, you know, if the, the entire, uh, I don't know what the, the bubble bursting, it's not really a bubble because there's nothing there's no product, <laughs> you know, there's no tangible, <laughs> like the, the housing market had a bubble, but then when the bubble burst, the banks could go and take something back. In college, there is nothing to take back, you know, Except like what are they going to do? Take your, take your degree and just yeah, have like yeah. a warehouse, like at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they're just filled with people's college degrees and boxes. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's probably uh, better use for them. Yeah, I mean, you know, kindling, I don't know. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I I see, like, for a long time, people like us have talked about the shit hitting the fan, and it seems like right now that, that that's becoming very palpable, right, that, that we know something is coming. A lot, of, a lot of people who are libertarians have moved away from academic discussions, into more practical talk. Did you ever think you'd hear libertarians debating a border wall or immigration laws? Those things are happening now, right? So, th so there is a shift. There is a kind of quickening. To to speak to what you said, you know, you 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 put this in with higher education and a bunch of other things that appear to be on the horizon. It, it seems like this feeling is growing that there are tensions and difficulties ahead, and I certainly think considering the amount of money that is wrapped up in in higher education right now um, you know not even considering how much of it is actually in default but it's over a trillion dollars um, yeah that that could be a catalyst for a lot of economic hardships for sure yeah it's uh it's gonna be interesting man it's uh it I I don't know what's gonna happen I you know my 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 brother, you know, he's like, he's actually one that he's going for marine biology and he's, he's doing really well. And as much as I pound my chest to not go to school, like it was something that for him, I was like, you know, man, well do something that you can learn a skill too. And it's, it's actually cool. You know, he was like the only community college kid to get this paid internship for marine biology at the university of Washington last summer. Cause he's, he works hard and it's like, and I, I, I like to think I've helped him with that. Like, you know, he, he applied for, for, uh, for these internships his first year, he didn't get it. So he went to the writing center and then he got a few offers because he's learning. He's just keeps focusing on skills. Oh, I'm not a good writer. So I need to focus on how can I write better? And, you know, instead of saying this is unfair, he just kept working harder. And, and it, so I think that is still there. Just like what you said, like a majority of kids aren't social justice warriors, but the loudest ones are. Um, but they also need to be prepared, right? Like part yeah. of, part of what I try to do is, is like break the news to, even though I have, you know, a fairly small audience compared to the number of people who need to be reached. I, I I'm happy to see that there's so much of an effort, um, you know, through outlets like, um, 
you know, whether it's McGinnis or Milo or Rebel Media, to inform high school age kids, more high school age kids, what the college environment is increasingly looking like these days. Because I think one of the reasons why a lot of young people get wrapped up in a lot of this bullshit is they have no intellectual self-defense. They have no into uh, emotional self-defense and they're blindsided by this college culture. So no one is prepared to go to college and and be in that environment. I certainly wasn't. You know, I remember being there, being in college and on like day 3 being like, do we drink every night? You know, and then like day seven, is it okay to throw beer bottles at the payphone at 2 a.m.? You know, like no, there was no preparation for any of this. And now when you look at those toxic social environments, it's like they're going to subsume more people just because people are not prepared for what they're encountering, right? We live in a society where most people are just kind of apolitical and not deep thinkers about a lot of political and philosophical issues. So they have a tendency to just drift to the left. You know, the media leans to the left, Hollywood leans to the left, social Facebook, Google, YouTube are all, you know, skewed to the left. So if you just exist in the world, um, you know, without really strong intellectual self-defenses or without really living consciously and, and continuously questioning what you're being exposed to and why, and you prioritize other things over like a political or a philosophical identity, you're just going to drift to the left. Like a current is just going to take you that way. And in higher education, that current is much, much stronger. And people haven't, and not only have they not gotten, you know, good intellectual self-defense skills, but they, they're also just, this is just from my experience of a dec almost a decade of working with kids in that age group. They're not particularly good at, you know, asserting themselves, standing out against the crowd, even if it means there's going to be social costs for doing so. So you see in these in these rallies, in these protests, in in college students speaking at events, there's just a lot of virtue signaling and people trying to fit in. They want to be part of the crowd. Everything goes in that direction. So why wouldn't I? You know, yeah. I'm we're, we're tribal. We we don't want to be, uh, you know, isolated on a college campus. And they're saying things like, you know, it used to be hard to come out as gay in college. Now imagine saying you're like a Republican in college. Dude, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's dangerous. Yeah, it's, it's dangerous to say you're a Trump supporter and which and that's something that's like, I mean, I'm definitely not a Trump supporter, but it's something that's interesting is like everybody's like saying like that was the weirdest thing to me was my my that people that weren't even for Hillary, but were anti Trumpers. It's like they're in such denial about the violence of the left. And it's it's uh like the first thing you see is people openly live streaming beating the shit out of a white person for insane and my mom actually made a good point like maybe maybe it was politically motivated or maybe it was just something for them to say while they were she's like either way it's a hate crime right but, you know maybe it's just something they were saying because they were they were just fucking sickos and i was like well that's definitely a possibility um but i mean it's it's scary man it's scary like like a, as much as i'd like to troll and walk around with like a make american great again hat like just to troll people or just for laughs that's a dangerous just for laughs thing to do so i, I it is yeah i wouldn't do it like it's and it's like i'll do it on facebook like just to mess with people just for laughs and 
maybe I should stop doing. Maybe I should. Sometimes I can actually generate a lot of discussion from it, like civil discussion. Um, but you know, I I just don't. Uh, it man, it's like I I feel like we just keep drifting towards wanting confrontation, like a a need for confrontation for some reason. And, and, and maybe it's because we're not confronting things internally. So we're looking to do it externally. I don't know. I, I think there's something deeper going on, but even like, it's, it's weird. You were, you were saying about the confrontation in the, the Liberty, just in Liberty, like there's a huge one and it's, it's weird was it all started. It seemed like for me, when I started paying attention to it was Stefan Molyneux goes vote for Trump. He represents the anti-establishment, blah, blah, blah. And Jeffrey Tucker, I hear, go on Chris Stefanik's show, uh, Choice Conversations, and Jeffrey Tucker's like, Trump's a fascist. That's the first time I ever heard Trump said as a fascist. He goes, you should read the Turner Diaries. You should read these books. And it's, and it's a possibility. A man that's not owed to anything could be this. And I'm like, well, that's an interesting thought. But then it's like, I, I feel like a lot of these arguments or this confrontation it seems like it's trickling from the liberty. Maybe it's my ego saying that, but it seems like it, I see things first in liberty, and then I see it start to trickle out to mainstream, and it's um, it's just fascinating to me, man. Like I don't, I don't know. And then like the the liberty, and it's weird too. Like the, it's just it's just interesting to see. It's interesting to see how much conf- like how much conflict there really is, and it's like you know it it I don't know. It's 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 um. It's uncomfortable, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, but it's like yeah. people are going out of their way to provoke the opposite side a whole lot more. And I know I'm doing it because I think it. I think I did it just because I think people are being stupid. So I'm going to poke the bear and see what happens. But maybe other people do that, too. Maybe that's a bad thing for me to do. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Well, I mean, it depends on why people are doing it, right? And and there's a variety of strategies. I mean, one of the one of the reasons why people troll is to feel efficacious, right? Yeah. Like yeah. if you can suck somebody else into whatever you're doing. Now, sometimes it's just a strategy. Sometimes it's just a learning opportunity. Like I know people that that I've I've seen troll, and at first I was like, why are they doing it? And then it, I I've kind of realized it's almost a kind of social experiment. And I was motivated by my webmaster just by watching him do it. That, and I, I don't really love his style of doing it, but I did it uh, a couple weeks ago, and I learned a lot. Uh, not like, wow, you know, the other side has a really good story, and I was being naive to not recognize it. It's nothing like that. I learned a lot about them socially, yeah, and emotionally. Like I gathered information from from doing that. Now, for most people. If it's not a learning opportunity, I think it's a way of feeling efficacious. It's a way of having an impact. I think that, you know, having a show is a good outlet for that, right? So I couldn't imagine, I'm not sure how I would behave online if I didn't have this outlet or if I didn't, if I didn't have a community of people that I could talk to about these things. Uh, it might get more bottled up, you know, and, and kind of explode outward more, more forcefully or more antisocially uh, in many cases. And... You know, the world's always been a plenty violent place, there's no doubt, but it almost seems like we're starting to see the kinds of interactions that happen on Facebook spill out into the real world, right? Where where trolling is, online trolling almost has like a uh, 3D meat world form now, 
that we've seen developing really over the last couple of years ago. Like even, even watching other contentious political campaigns, like over the last 10 or 15 years, there was nothing like this. Like people are trolling IRL now. And that seems to be kind of a new phenomenon where it's very much just about getting that response from yeah. people. Now it depends. This could also be a kind of promotional strategy as it is with Milo and the like. Yeah. Did, right? you, did you read that article I sent that Ryan, Ryan Halliday wrote? That's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we should talk about it for a few minutes if you want, yeah, but absolutely. it's it, but keep going. that is coming th that online behavior where if you meet somebody on Facebook, like back, you know, people were fighting on Facebook four or five years ago. If you met somebody on Facebook who you didn't know, and it was like in the context of some political disagreement, you would be calling them names and gaslighting them and all that stuff. But if you had, if you happen to meet that person in real life at the supermarket by coming around, you know, the corner at the same time and bumping carriages, it would be like, oh, so sorry. I'm so clumsy. Haha. <laughs> you know, it's so, so the, the real world used to be different. And now I think, it, you know, like I said, it's not the, the social media is not a catalyst for violence in the real world. Violence has always existed, but we're seeing like social media stranger behavior that was always permissible online because there was that barrier, there was that safety. We're almost seeing this emergence of groups of people who don't care about the barrier not being there in the real world, and and they 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 live so much online. And they get so much, um, you know, whatever positive feelings or eff uh, self-efficacy from doing these things online. They've taken it to the streets in this last campaign. We, I never saw that before. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but, but I mean, you know, Milo, on the other hand, is a master of it. You know, he's he's used it to propel himself to the top of the uh, the Amazon bestseller list. Yeah. I mean, it, it, he's doing it, and uh, it's so interesting because when, when Ryan Halliday, and I've read, uh, I think it's the same Ryan Halliday, you know, Friends with Tim Ferriss, The Obstacles the Way. Because I would I, assume that it is him, yeah. Yeah, because I, I did get that book on Audible. Um, I found a cool Audible hack, too, Brett, which I can, I can share with you. You can actually get Audible credits on eBay, and you can get, Ooh. like, 15 credits for 25 bucks, and they work. It's pretty crazy, so... People search eBay and do that. You don't have to pay $14.95 a month for one book. So anyways, with that being said, so I got that book and uh, I haven't read it yet, but I read that article. My friend Neil posted it and I was listening to you talk with, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, so I'm not even going to say it, but on your last show. Biffo. Uh, Biffo, yeah. yeah. And, and you were kind of talking about that. Like, is this, do you think this is a strategy of rebel media to get popular? I mean, not only are they, they are shedding light on stuff that's going on in universities, but, you know, when in that article, and I'll, I'll post the link in the show notes, but basically Ryan Halliday says he helped promote Tucker Max, which if people don't, a lot of people probably don't remember, but he, him and uh, Maddox were kind of in the same, like, uh, provocative area. Like Maddox, uh, I don't know if you remember Maddox, like xmission.com. And he Thanks. like your kids you're like I'm, my art's better than your kids. He grade people's arts. And yeah. You just say I'm better than your kids. I can run faster, read better. And it was like this big goof, but people would get super offended by it because he he took real kids' art that he saw from his work and he posted the photos on his website and said oh, and he gave them all F's and stuff. It was hilarious. And then Tucker and Max they did something similar. And if if they knew 
that people were coming in town. If 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 Tucker was going to be in town to talk about a book signing, uh, they would report people that they knew opposed Tucker to get hype. And it's and it's actually something, man. Honestly, man, it's like something from pro wrestling. It's like the heel move of pro wrestling, or to to watch Chael Sonnen do it in MMA, or even you know, just it's like this. Uh, the the pro, being a provocateur is a, is a marketing strategy or PR strategy that people don't that people don't give enough respect to, and just yeah. like what you're saying about Myler, even even Donald Trump, man. I mean, it Donald is the Trump. Donald Trump strategy. It's also the Slate and Salon and you know the Huffington Post strategy. Where they write these, I mean, Slate and Salon, and I fell for this back in the day a bunch of times. They would write these ridiculous, like, I used to be a libertarian and then I woke up and now I'm a Clinton supporter. Like, that would be their headline. Yeah. Right? So, who shares that on Facebook? You know, um, mostly people who are pro liberty, but who do those people have in their newsfeed who are seeing that story? Probably a lot of people that are oriented towards the left, if, you know, the overall population is any indication, especially if it's a young person who you know, would pick up Slate or Salon or Huffington Post articles. So, you know, the article talks about Milo gets this press, right? And yep. the, the the tactic is uh, to basically leverage the size of their non-audience, right? So they do something outrageous. 100,000 people hear about it. 90,000 are outraged. And 10,000 are like, huh, what's this? I'm going to look into this. And you're absolutely right. Trump did the exact same thing. But in Trump's case, it was almost smarter. Like Milo, if he goes and he upsets 100,000 people, maybe he can suck in five or 10 to check him out and start consuming his work. And then they say, oh, this guy's smart and entertaining. And uh, I'm glad some outraged nitwit on CNN told me about him. But Trump was playing more. So if we, if we call Milo's strategy like the 90-10 strategy, 90% of people are going to hate me, 10% of people are going to love me. Trump was playing more of like a 40-20-40 strategy, which is typically, you know, the, the voter makeup, right? You have 40% of people are going to go one way no matter what, 40% of the people are going to go the other way no matter what, and it's what you do with the 20% in between that, that decides the election. So it seemed like Trump, who is a media personality, yeah, took the temperature yeah. took the temperature of the country, and he said, all right, well, Who's uh who who do people think is awesome? <laughs> right? Tony Soprano, Frank Underwood, Walter White, the the anti-heroes. And you always want to go back and see what they're going to do next. And these shows also drive huge ratings. So people, uh, you know, Trump's team or just Trump himself, I, I don't know who else was involved in I this mean, strategy. Kevin Geary just, pointed out his his Twitter. I mean, Trump's Twitter is so powerful. Like, yeah. I mean, it's 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 unreal. Like, and it's and it's it, honestly, man, it's fucking hilarious. Like, he he doesn't want to use the Pottis account, so he can still use his own account to talk shit to people. Yeah. I mean, people are like, well, do you really want your president of the United States to do that? It's like, man, I, the president of the United States doesn't really do anything I want him to do. So fuck it. Like, it's funny. Like, I I want entertainment, and I think that's how a lot of people feel. Right. And he always, it, it, that's part of it, but it worked to grab enough people out of that swayable 20% to his side because he was going to, he was going to embolden and consolidate the 40%, even though there was like a lot of friction in the Republican party and there was a lot of division 
over Trump and he wasn't their choice candidate. Once he got the nomination, like that talk largely subsided. There were, you still had the never Trumpers, but most people got on board, right? By the time the Republican, I was thinking there was gonna be like a riot at the Republican convention, but there wasn't. People were on board. He even, he even like <laughs> brought Ted Cruz up on stage and fed him to the wolves. You know, <laughs> this kind of like Roman spectacle. It was it was an interesting thing, and everybody loved it. Everybody ate it up. So, the other thing that Trump tries to do that Milo succeeds at doing because his opponents are mostly so repulsive, is he's able to establish the moral high ground. Like most of Trump's story, uh, stories that he tells, like even in this press conference yesterday, is about how he's a victim. Yeah. Right now, that's what gets you in America positioning yourself as the underdog, even if that's like a tough sell for some people. If you can get people to buy into the idea that you're an underdog, that's why he pitted himself against the media. The media is so powerful and the media is so dishonest and I'm gonna take them on and we're gonna drain the swamp, the big powerful swamp. He, you know, this guy worth billions of dollars yeah. who has, you know, all of this access uh, positions himself as the David in this David and Goliath battle. And I think to some extent that's legitimate. I think but, more people that hate him watch his press yeah. conferences than people. Man, it reminds me of when Howard Stern first, first got popular. It's like yeah. the same fucking thing. More people are tuning in that don't like him than that like him. Absolutely, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. You were making a good point. No, sorry. I, and I think that's one of the things that the article talks about is that, you know, Trump is continuously trying to grab the moral high ground, which slowly allows him to win over more people. And then, you know, he he's kind of um, I read an article recently on the show about how he's turned postmodernism against him itself by playing the antihero, by dealing in basically untruth or anti-truth or anti-realism. You know, like <laughs> people used to, uh, you know, the, the left would say, you're a racist, you're a sexist. And, and they'd go, oh, no, 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 I'm not. I'm sorry. How can I fix it? How can I fix it? Yeah. Oh, I want to be called that. It hurts my feelings. Trump just owns it. He's like, yeah, I'm a bad guy, yeah. <laughs> you know? And he's like, no, 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 no. But he never comes out. And like you you see in interviews, the, the, the interviewer has to ask these leading questions and try and like pull condemnation of, uh, you know, the more radical, like alt-right or neo-Nazis or the Ku Klux Klan, will you disavow them? Will you disavow David Duke? He's like, I don't know David Duke. I don't know what that is. I don't know Putin. You know, he's he, he won't come down and say, no, this is terrible. And, you know, he won't play their game. No. He just dances around it. He's a master and, persuader, man, like Scott Adams says. And And the effect is that not just does it win people over, but it is... It is more, and it, it, I think the way it wins people over is that he keeps himself at, the, we live in a Donald Trump world. He yeah. keeps himself at the front of the press every single day. And the more immersed people get in Trump, the, I mean, there's more people are going to be repulsed, but you also have more people are going to come to his side. You know, it reminds me, one of my favorite filmmakers is Martin Scorsese. Love him. And you watch a movie like Taxi Driver with Travis, or you watch a movie like, Raging Bull with uh, Jake LaMotta or Goodfellas with, with Henry Hill. And at some point in the film, you say to yourself, am I really fucking rooting for this guy? You know, but you are, you know, he's the protagonist. Even and, the Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, to a certain extent. Like when things go wrong, you're like, oh, it hurts my heart a little bit. 
So it, it's 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 interesting how and and that's part of this antihero phenomenon. I think you know Tony Montagna was uh, from Scarface was was another example of this. How at the end of the movie he kind of shouts down all those rich people at the country club who are trying to judge him for a drug dealer. Like you people are any good? Like you're the good people? Uh, and and Trump mastered that. You know, he he pitted himself against this excited as this exciting antihero against the boring, uh, you know, outrage queen. Too. Yeah, and conservatives too. It's like you can all clutch your pearls and feign your outrage. Uh, that's fine. People are tired of it, and I'm going to expose it. So it's very similar. The article that I read pointed out that it was a nice parallel to that Tony Montagna speech from Scarface, and it's true. So, yeah. Um, you know, um, Ryan Holiday, who who wrote this article, and he, I think he was doing it as like kind of a, a warning, right? Um, to because he had used this strategy to to help Tucker Max uh, like four or five years ago, and I think he even wrote a book about it called "Trust Me, I'm Lying." Yeah, yeah, and it's it's an audible. A, I can yeah. I can share that in the. I uh, actually I have that and a Jonathan Haidt uh, book. And I and I can share those books. So if people want to start an Audible account, they can for free. I'm not an affiliate of Audible, but I like giving away free shit. Absolutely, yeah. So so was was trust me, I'm lying. The book you were talking about. I'm pulling it up now. It's in my um, I'm pulling up my Audible app now. Uh, it is called Trust Me, I'm Lying. Confessions of Okay, yeah, just trust me, I'm lying. But it's confessions of something. But yeah, that's it. Me, a media manipulator. Yeah. Yes. So. I think in that book, I've heard him tell this story elsewhere. <laughs> he talks about somebody set up a website called shipyourenemiesglitter.com, right? Yeah. And it wasn't a real. So it says, this is a service where for $5, you can send an envelope filled with glitter to a friend or an enemy. But there's a and real dog shit service like that, too. You can ship someone dog shit. And this service was entirely fake. There, there is no real dog shit. There is no real glitter. It was just, it was fake. There was no product. There was no company infrastructure. There was no uh, <laughs> R&D. It was just a website. So he started sharing it on social media, you know, posting about it on Reddit, Twitter, StumbleUpon, wherever. And this buzz started to get uh, generated. And then he took the buzz generated on these social media platforms and he linked it to social news and email or uh, local news and emails. And he said, "Hey, look at this phenomenon that's happening online. Everyone's going crazy about this ship your glitter to uh, ship your enemies glitter.com. You know? So then the local news is like they take the bait and they go, "Oh, that's really interesting. Look at this strange phenomenon and all of these links that are coming to us. So this is certainly a real thing." And then they create stories. And then the guy takes those stories and he sends them to bigger media outlets and they take the bait. Because they have to fill 24 hours a day of news or they have to, you know, put 12 things on a blog every day or 100 things on a blog, depending on what blog it is. And then the guy sells the company for $100,000 based on based on hype, you know, and there's no company. So I, I, I remember hearing Ryan Holiday tell that story. And if you just compare that to this strategy of. You know, it's, it's a little different in this case, but Trump just walked around and Milo just walks around, you know, <laughs> aspiring bee, aspiring beekeeper, basically, or, uh, you know, pest control person, just whacking bees nests and saying, oh, look at all these bees and whacking another bees nest. 
it's 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 quite clever, but it's worked out. It worked out for Trump. It worked out for Milo. And uh, yeah, you know, I mean, Holiday wrote the book on this, so it worked out for him as well. It's interesting. Yeah, it definitely is. So one thing that I think that's interesting, man, is how people still think that Trump is some dummy. And I feel like the, the biggest thing you can do is to think that he's stupid because you just dismiss any real danger that could potentially be there. And they think it's he's dangerous because he is so dumb. But I'm like, he's not dumb. Like, he's not. He Look, you don't get to where he is by being dumb. Now, he is an asshole. He is narcissistic. He is... You know, he he is a little bit of a, I mean, yeah, he's an asshead for sure. But, you know, being an asshole doesn't make you stupid. I mean, the guy, the guy has lived the way the guy, I remember hearing Kevin Smith talk, tell the story about when he worked with Prince and yes. how he like had such an issue with Prince. And then like Prince's manager was like, well, Prince has been living in Prince land for so long. Like I literally have to, he'll call me at one in the morning and say, Hey, I, I want to get a camel right now. And I have to explain to him how it's not physically possible to get a, a camel in Minnesota at one one in the morning and in December. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's like the same thing that I think about with Trump, man. Like he has been, he has lived a lifestyle that most people are only going to dream of his whole life, and like obviously he's going to act a lot different than than most people. But that's that's also the weird thing. Because the people who who got behind him first were like yeah. rural Americans or even union workers, man. Like this is the first election where I've seen union workers just not go with the Democrats. Say, you know what, we've been fucked too long. Fuck it. And they're and literally they it's just them throwing a brick through the establishment and saying, if you don't want to represent us, then you're gonna get this guy. And that's how that's the way I've looked at it the whole time. Like not only is Trump a master persuader, not only is is he like, I mean, and, and also, too, if we look at the positives of Trump and look, I, I'm not a supporter, but now the Republican Party or conservatism as we know it is 100 percent different. And now the Democratic Party has to do something 100 percent different if they want to get Trump out of office. And it's like so he is so disruptive in that sense that the system is going to have to change. Is it going to be for the better? Or is it going to be for the worse? I don't know. I really don't know. But I do see, man, I do see a lot of young conservatives posturing up to try to get whatever conservative money they probably can to support their uh, their independent shows. And I don't want to say names, but I mean, it's 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 pretty apparent. I think it's it's interesting times, man. I mean, like people are trying to posture up to take advantage or get on this Trump wagon. Right. And and it's interesting, man. I mean, you saw it early. I saw it with uh, Newt Gingrich and Newt, I thought, was going to be a cabinet member. But that was interesting, too. See, when I like Megyn Kelly's show and he's like, you know, he's basically saying that she's a fraud. And she goes, well, you know, how I feel about Clinton. He goes, OK, well, then just say it in a sentence. Bill Clinton, sexual predator. You've done it with Donald Trump a 100 times. Why can't you say it about Bill Clinton? And she never said it. And then I think like a month later, she announced that she was leaving Fox. Yeah. And, yeah, no, it's interesting. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, and I'm just saying, yeah, it's interesting when people like Newt Gingrich or people like Piers Morgan who's saying, like, you know, we can't call Trump Hitler. And he has people like, uh, who's actually a funny-ass comic, but just getting all irrational 
and and attacking him on Bill Marshall. Uh, I forget his name. He's like I can see his face. That Australian comment. Jim Jeffries. Yeah, Jim. that was so ridiculous. Like this is this these are the smart, responsible people today, right? When Piers Morgan speaks up and says it's not a Muslim ban. Uh, which, you know, is definitely a position that could be argued considering there's 75 majority Muslim countries in the world and or 57, sorry, I think 57 majority Muslim countries in the world and 50 are not on this list and this list is temporary. And, you know, I mean, and calling it a, a, a Muslim ban is very directed and it's, of course, just the latest in leftist manipulation, uh, language yeah. manipulation tricks. So and when then your defense is to say fuck off and give somebody the bird on TV it, and say, oh, I well, don't have support. On. Yeah. yeah, well, the eggs them on. Yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. And those are the smart people. Those are the, that's the political adults table right now. So, you know, I mean, it's this, this whole Trump is stupid thing. I think it's interesting because, you know, there is this question of what does Trump actually know? How good of a uh, how good of an operator is Trump actually? So he's proven his confidence in kind of puppeteering the media, to to a certain respect. Like he's been very competent with that. Now, the pattern that I've noticed over you know my life paying attention to this stuff is every president is somebody's tool, yeah. every is somebody's vehicle, right? So you know Obama um, was was young and inexperienced and. A lot of people had his ear, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, people who wanted to try and, and, and they got their, all their efforts were very much retarded by a, just a, a very, um, you know, what's the, um, I don't want to use the word obfuscatory. <laughs> Sounds like such a stupid word. There's this word. What's the, what's this, uh, combative, I guess is fine. Yeah. Or, or like they, they, they are saying the Republicans won't do anything. They won't let us do anything because they were, they kept stopping um, you know, Obama's agenda. So if, you know, Obama had uh, a rubber stamp Congress, it could have been a very, very different outcome of his presidency as far as what was carried forward. Bush was very much a tool of the neoconservatives and their foreign, foreign policy agenda. Clinton, who was very much a schemer, you know, in his own right, uh, was also, you know, presiding over a lot of sort of international neoliberal economic projects, especially like in Southeast Asia, that he probably didn't fully understand. And he had that whole like Larry Summers crew, um, you know, in his administration. So every administration is a vehicle for, for somebody. I mean, pretty much over my whole life anyway. Maybe, maybe that's a relatively new phenomenon in history. But um, I think the, the whole Trump is stupid thing is kind of shifting, it's shifting more towards Trump is being manipulated by this darker faction inside his administration run by Steve Bannon. And Steve Bannon has this direct line to like neo-reactionaries and alt-writers and neo-Nazis. And with Breitbart, it's an easy connection to make very sloppily. So people see Trump as maybe not stupid, but that maybe that doesn't even matter because there's smart and evil people guiding him inside the administration just like there was with with George W. Bush. My stepdad sent me something about that. It appears Steve Bannon, did he just do this? I'm like, no, Bill, that's bullshit. Two days later, it comes out it's bullshit. And then what what's funny is, is like things that they can talk about, they don't. Like Trump said to the president of Mexico, you got to take care of those bad. Basically, it was in regard to building the wall. He was like, you got to take care of those bad hombres down there. I'm going to send the U.S. military to do it for you. <laughs> 
And it's all like a posture to try to get them to to pay for the wall. And it's, man, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the only thing that I think Trump is a puppet to isn't even him being a puppet. It's like he has a lot of friends in U.S. energy. If you look at when he does press conferences, he talks about my good friend this, my good friend that. They're all U.S. oil people. I remember I was watching because I got I didn't really start to pay attention to Trump and think he was funny until can't I started I discovered the can't stump the Trump YouTube page mm -hmm. and I thought it was fucking hilarious like just just because it was well done and funny and uh, but I would go and I'd watch some of these press conferences like I I'd see that there's a live press conference I'd be bored at work and he's in like North Dakota and who puts it on some guy that owns a shale oil company who went from being worth about $7 billion to $2 billion when the price of oil dropped. And it mm -hmm. was like, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, look, that guy has more money than more, you know, he's in the top 1%, but losing $5 billion has to be a painful thing to go through. And, and you know, and, and Trump's talked, I mean, if you listen to him, it's interesting. I do, I mean, man, I really do think he's like a U.S. energy guy. And I think that, if anybody's pulling his strings, that's who it is. It's U.S. energy. But also, too, like, it, it, it makes me think uh, about this, uh, this obsession. And you only got a few minutes left, man. This is great. I'll have to have you on again. But how we're going, and, I, and this is my hope, man. It's like we've been in this globalist culture, and now we're going to, like, a very nationalist idealism. And hopefully we go to, like, a very state idealism and then, like, a city-state, like, just to get smaller and smaller and smaller and hopefully that's what we focus on because I feel like that, to me, is going to be the solution to a lot of things is decentralization, which we're all fans of. Right. Um, but I don't know. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people who were liberty-minded jumped on the, the Trump, Trump wagon. Yeah. Because, and, and, you know, it makes sense, too, and I don't have a good argument against this, even though I don't like making this argument. I just don't like the way it feels. But if you have a way to go from, I mean, obviously, like self-governance is the ideal. So if you have a way to go from global governance to national governments, you, 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 governance, you just got closer to self-governance. Now, unless you, as you know, the Germans and so many others did, fall into the trap of complete nationalism, blind nationalism, xenophobia, and otherism, which is only going to harden the nationalist position. Right. Yeah. But is there a way? So now that the, the, the referendum on globalism versus nationalism is over and it went towards nationalism. <laughs> now we see states like California saying, no, you know what? No nationalism. We're going to we're going back to uh, the, the state or at least there's some talk about it. And there will probably be, you know, other movements like that with other states. That state I think that's a very positive trend. Yeah, that state realistically needs to break up into like four different states. Because it's, oh, absolutely. it's so different and so big. And also, like, they're going to have a mass exodus out of California because, I mean, I, I've covered this a lot with my good friend Charles Hugh Smith, who he lives in Berkeley. And because there's like, everybody's moving to the Bay Area because they think they're going to be a tech billionaire. Everyone's moving to the LA area because they think they're going to be a, an artist that gets paid professionally. And there's so many people there. There's not enough housing, so housing's super inflated. So you're gonna have to move to the Midwest where everybody's leaving. And quite honestly, I don't mind. It makes my shit cheaper. So, um, but hey, man, you gotta go, Brett. Thanks for coming on. Uh, 
how can people get in touch with you and how can people follow your sh- your show and your work? Uh, thank you so much for coming on too, man. I had a great time talking to you. My pleasure. Uh, the best way to check out what I do is at schoolsucksproject.com. And if you check out a couple shows and you enjoy them, you know, follow me on Twitter at School Sucks Show and find uh, School Sucks Project on Instagram. And we have a YouTube channel. Uh, the username is School Sucks Podcast. And um, is there anything you think I should point your audience at specifically? I think we've 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 done a lot of overlapping topics, but probably homeschooling. You, I think yeah, you're a great resource for homeschooling. Yeah, you know, on my website, there's just if people are new, there's a in the main nav bar, there's a, a an option called New Start Here, and you can read a little bit about what we're trying to do. And then there's a a great interview of uh, that I did with Tom Woods, or that Tom Woods did with me for uh, a book that he wrote, and uh, you can kind of get most of my attitudes about home education versus schooling. And you can see some of our resources on that page. So that'd be a good place for, for people to start. And, uh, you know, I'd be happy to answer any questions anyone has at some point in the future. And Brett's not going to uh, promote this, but if you do like Brett's show, he does have a way that you can support him. He also has an AD club that you guys can join and also a Patreon account. Indeed. Thank you for mentioning that. Not Not a problem. Uh, Well, hey, guys, thanks again for listening and looking forward to bringing you another episode soon.